good morning. Good morning. I hope everybody is doing well. Hope you've had a good week. If we haven't had the chance uh, to meet personally yet, my name is Dean. I'm the lead pastor here. And if today is your first day, whether you're watching for the first time online or you're in the room, we're grateful, like I said, that you're with us. Um, I'll give you a couple of tools to help you navigate the morning. If it is your first time, if you would go ahead and take out your smartphone or your tablet, whatever it is that you have, um, and type in lpguest.com. Um, if, certainly, if you're in the room, you can scan the QR code on one of the chairs that's in front of you. It'll take you to the same spot. So those two things that are there, one is that there are interactive message notes that are available. So you can type your notes into my notes, email those to yourself just as a reminder of maybe something that God says to you uh, today uh, as you're listening to the, the message. Also, there's a digital guest card that's available. It'll take you about 30 seconds, 45 seconds, whatever, to fill that out. I would encourage you to go ahead and do it right now because on the bottom of that card, there are six different ministries that are listed there. They're doing great work um, in our city. Uh, we're already partnered with all six of them, and you choose the one that's nearest uh, to you. And we'll make an extra $5 donation in your honor to that particular ministry just because you let us know that you were here uh, with us today. We want to give you the opportunity to do something good, kind, to make a difference in somebody's life. So you've joined us on the third week of a series that uh, we have entitled Broken Mirrors. And the idea of the series is that we are looking through some of the lesser discussed characters in Hebrews chapter 11. Now, a lot of times these uh, Old Testament characters that are listed there are, uh, they're kind of depicted to us as heroes. But when you really look at them individually, they are broken heroes at best. But that's good news uh, for us because we are broken, imperfect people. And broken people can still reflect a perfect God. So these characters have acted and are, are acting like um, mirrors for us. They help us not just see them, but they help us see ourselves uh, better. So we talked about our first two core values over the past couple of weeks. And again, they're all listed in the lobby uh, up there on the wall for us just as a reminder. But we've talked about gospel identity. Uh, then last week, we talked about reaching priority. That brings us to um, our third core value today and how God uses us in one another's uh, lives. About, I don't know, six years ago or so, I was uh, teaching up at a camp in Michigan uh, called Gold Lake in the summer. And um, it's been a real blessing to get to go up there. But it's a different kind of camp. Like when you think about summer camp, right, you think about just kids. Uh, but Gold Lake's a little different. It's families that go uh, up together. So like I said, I was teaching up there. I was doing a run uh, around uh, that point kind of up there around the lake and it started to rain. So I had to go indoors to finish my run. So they've got like a little gymatorium there and I was going to finish my run around the track. Well, there was uh, a 17 year old um, and 16, 17 year old boy who was in there running as well. So I'm jogging around the track and um, the 17 year old passes me and which is fine. Uh, but when he passed me, he kind of went, like, gave me a smirk. You can pass me. That's okay. You may not smirk at me, right, when you run past me. So there he goes in his little tight shorts, right, shorty shorts, right, going by me. And so at that moment, like, you know, you kind of have a decision to make. So um, I sped up and passed him because that was the mature thing to do, right? <laughs> so I go running past him. And then about a half a lap later, he comes running back by me, right? So, you know, you think, I'm, I mean, I'm older, I'm um, mature, I'm wiser, so I sprinted. 
and I sprint past him. And when he sees me sprint past him, he decides he's gonna sprint as well. So we make it about three quarters of the way around the track and my right hamstring says, you made a bad decision, right? <laughs> so I reach down, kind of pull up lame and, uh, and walk out. I found out later on that his name was Joel. Uh, he's from up in the Maslin uh, area. And so the next morning, whenever I was teaching, only the, the parents were in the room. And I said, hey, are Joel's mom and dad, are they here? And they're like, yeah, we're here. And I was like, great. I need you to come up here and read scripture. So um, I was teaching on Amos that day, and there was a lot of hard words. And I just thought I was going to make them publicly read those hard words as an example of what bad parents they must be. <laughs> they raised this kid the way that, the, the way that they did. Uh, later on in the week, um, you know, every time I would see Joel, I'd reach down and grab my hamstring, you know, and limp like I was hurt. Um, we did a baptism service at the end of the week. And um, in the middle of that service, Joel decided God was speaking to him about being baptized. And he came up to me and he said, hey, Pastor Folks, would you baptize me? And I said, no way, Joel. Find somebody else. <laughs> I didn't say that. I didn't say that. I said, sure. Um, I'd like to think I pulled a hamstring in Jesus' name that week, right? That um, God uses us in one another's lives, sometimes in some weird ways. The way that we talk about that here is the value that we call authentic community. And authentic community just means that we are family. We are a spiritual um, family. And what we're going to see today in the text, and starting in Hebrews chapter 11, is going to take us all the way back to the beginning of the scriptures. When you finish up the book of Genesis, Joseph, right, who was sold um, out of Israel by his brothers into Egyptian slavery, uh, came down there, has now risen to the ranks of the vice president, really, of Egypt. His family started to grow. All of his brothers eventually joined. It's an amazing story if you've never read it. But at the end of the book of Genesis, Joseph's family, all of the Hebrew people, the totality of them, are living in Egypt in a place called Goshen. But by the time you get to the beginning of the book of Exodus, everything's changed. There's a new Pharaoh, and he's looked at the people of Israel, and there's just too many of them. And he's actually nervous that they may overthrow the Egyptian people. So he makes them slaves. He enslaves the Hebrew people down in Egypt. And what God is going to do in the Exodus is he's going to move his people from bondage in Egypt to freedom in Palestine. To do that, he's going to raise up a leader, one named Moses. Now, Moses is a pretty unique cat. Um, there are three major world religions that all say Moses is the one who brought their divinely inspired code, right? Uh, Hebrew, um, Hebrew uh, Judaism, Christianity, uh, and Islam. I think you could make the argument that outside of Jesus, Moses is the most influential person who has, who has ever lived. And what we get a front row seat for is how God creates a deliverer. But it all starts, according to Hebrews chapter 11, verse 23, it all starts with a decision made by Moses' parents. So if you've got a copy of the scriptures, turn over there and we'll get rolling. It says this in verse 23 of Hebrews 11, By faith Moses, when he was born, was hidden, past tense, for three months by his parents, because they saw that the child was beautiful, and they were not, they were not afraid of the king's edict. 
So Moses' parents, they hit him. You're like, well, why'd they hide him? Like, that didn't, make, that didn't make sense. Well, it does make sense in the context of the story. But before we jump into uh, Exodus uh, any further, I would just, um, I just, I know there's been a lot of, uh, over the past couple of centuries, maybe there's a lot of conflict between archaeologists and like, well, the, there's no evidence that the Hebrews were ever really in Egypt, but that's kind of changed over the past couple of decades. I'm going to show you a picture of something called the Merneptah steel. This is an Egyptian relic that's been discovered, not a Hebrew relic, but it tells the story of the Egyptians overthrowing the Hebrew people and thus making them, making them captives. And so what Pharaoh does is more and more and more, he gets, uh, he gets nervous, he's fearful about these Hebrews, and he decides that he needs to control the population by making them work and oppressing them more and more. Exodus 1 tells that story in verse 12. It says this, they, they being the Hebrews, built for Pharaoh's store cities, Python and Ramses. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and the more they spread abroad. And the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel. So they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves and made their lives bitter with hard service in brick uh, and mortar and in all kinds of work in the field. In all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. When we think about freedom, like the modern view of freedom is that we don't have any authority. That's how we look. If, if I were to ask you, are you free? You're like, well, yeah, I'm free. I get to make my own choices. I get to make my own decisions. That's how we think about freedom. The biblical view of freedom is actually, we're going to see in a second, is actually, it's actually very different. Pharaoh says, listen, I'm, I'm going to oppress these people. And actually in verse 14, if you read it literally in Hebrew, um, you almost can't translate it the way it's literally written because it's so redundant. Let me, I'm just going to read that verse 14 to you. This is how it's literally written. They, they being the Egyptians, made their lives, the Hebrews' lives, they made their lives bitter with serving in brick and mortar, with every kind of serving, with every kind of serving, they made them serve. The author here is making a point. I think he's making a point. And the point is, who's really free here? Because what you see about Pharaoh's life is that he's actually living in bondage. And the author's point is, if you are not serving God, if you're not living under God's authority, you're gonna, you're gonna live under somebody or some things. You're gonna serve something. The modern view of freedom is I don't have to, I don't have to serve. It's a myth. It's, a, it's an illusion. It's a mirage. You look at Pharaoh, Pharaoh was a slave to his appetites. Lust, um, success, you name it. He was a slave to all of these things. The idea of legacy, the idea of being known, the idea of being the greatest of the great. And listen, anything that you and I serve other than God, that's what it's going to do. And what's going to happen is when you live in bondage to things, it's going to create, it's going to bring up, it's going to dredge up emotions. Anger, fear, worry, depression, and sometimes... Those emotions can cause you and me to do incredibly terrible things. I certainly did with Pharaoh. Look at verse 15. Then the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Shiphrah and the other Puah, 
When you serve as a midwife to the Hebrew women see them, and see them on the birth stool, if it is a son, you shall kill him. But if it is a daughter, she shall live. Pharaoh thinks, okay, look, if I can't control the population through oppressive, uh, through oppressive work, here's what I'm going to do. We'll, we'll, just, we'll just kill all the Hebrew male children. And so he tells these two Hebrew midwives, he's like, look, if it's a male children, I want you to smother it. Female children, we'll just, we'll just uh, assimilate the females back into Egyptian culture and, and we'll be fine. What's interesting is this dichotomy between views about freedom. Right, the modern view, our view of freedom is, look, I don't have any authority. But the biblical view of freedom, freedom doesn't exist without authority. And you see it in these midwives. What you and I have been taught is that um, Moses rolled into Egypt as an adult, and he looked at Pharaoh and he said, let my people go. He didn't say that. Or he didn't say just that. Moses rolls into Egypt when he's an adult, when he's a leader eventually, and he says, thus saith the Lord, let my people go, that they may serve me, that they may worship me. That he is the object, he is the intent, and the intention, right, of faith. And when we bring our lives under his authority, things change. And you see that in these Hebrew midwives. Look at, the, look at the next verse in verse 17. But the Hebrew midwives, they feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt had commanded them. But they let, uh, they let the male children live. So these midwives are like the ancient uh, OB doctors. Typically, they were women who didn't have children of their own at home, so they could respond kind of at a moment's notice uh, to go and help uh, in the delivery of a child. In the most tense moments, the crucial moments, right, in the life of an infant. They were the ones who were there, and Pharaoh knew it. That's why he tried to draft them into following, into obeying him in this kind of uh, mass genocide of these male Hebrew children. But they're not, listening. They're, they're not having it. They were willing, rather, to face death, to face punishment, to live underneath God's authority, and really to live in freedom. The freedom to obey, the freedom to listen, the freedom to love, the freedom to do the right thing because of the authority that existed um, in their lives. Their names are Shifra and Puah. What's Pharaoh's name? It's not listed in the text. I think that's the intent of the author. To remind you and me that God uses the people that we would never use. That in the most crucial moments, if, if, if you've uh, been blessed to have children, you know what those moments right, are like. I remember whenever, um, whenever we were uh, pregnant with our first child, we went in uh, to deliver uh, the child. Man, it's, it, just, it, it can get tense right in there in the, in the moments. I asked the doctor, I said, hey, um, when, when's it gonna be time for the epidural? And the nurse said, she's already got the epidural. I said, no, I mean my epidural. <laughs> This is a very tense time for me, right? And it is. And in those moments, right, these, these two women, these women that we would probably never choose, these women are the heroes of Exodus chapter 1. The ones that we would never have chosen are exactly the ones. They're exactly the ones that God chooses. So when that plan doesn't work, Pharaoh's gonna, he's got another plan. Uh, verse 22, then Pharaoh commanded all of his people, right? Doesn't work with just the midwives, so now we're going to involve everybody. 
Every son that is born to the Hebrews, you shall cast into the Nile, but you shall let every daughter live. So Pharaoh says, here's what we're going to do. We're going to offer all of the male Hebrew children, all the infants that are born. We're going to offer them as sacrifices to our, one of our gods, to, to the Nile River. And so what happens over the next few verses is that there's a woman. Her name uh, is Jochebed, Moses' mother. Um, Jochebed and her husband have a son, and they hide him for three months. They could keep him quiet, but when he's making too much noise, too much movement, and they can no longer, they can no longer keep him hidden, she takes a basket, she puts him in a basket, and takes him down to the Nile River and lets him float away in the basket. Now, she sent her daughter, I'm guessing teenage daughter, her name was Miriam, so this would have been Moses' older sister, to go along and watch. Now, why did she do that? It wasn't random. Now, Jacobed's got a plan. And her plan is that Miriam will walk along the riverbank and see and figure out what happens and find ways if she can to help her brother. Because no one would ever suspect a teenage, a teenage daughter. So Moses floats down the river, finds himself right in the bulrushes, right where God planned, where God designed for him to be. And when he's there, he starts to cry. And when he starts to cry, Pharaoh's daughter is there at the Nile, and here's what happens. Um, verse, uh, chapter two, verse six. And she, she, Pharaoh's daughter, took pity on him and said, this is one of the Hebrews' children. Then his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, shall I go and call a nurse from the Hebrew women to nurse the child for you? And Pharaoh's daughter said, go. And so the girl went and called the child's mother. And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, take this child away and nurse him for me and I will give you your wages. So the woman took the child and nursed him. Now, I'm gonna tell you why I think it worked out this way. This is not Bible, this is, this is Dean, right? Connecting the dots. Here's what I think. I think Pharaoh's daughter wanted to be the queen of Egypt. But to be the queen of Egypt, she had to have an heir to sit on the throne. Now, there have been Egyptian uh, relics and obelisks that have been found that Pharaoh's daughter was seen as the regent of the Nile. So she was the, the mediator of the Nile or of this God uh, in, their, in their world to their people. So here's what I think. I think there's a good chance that Pharaoh's daughter prayed to what she thought was her God, the God of the Nile River, and asked for a male child. She moseys down to the river one day. Here's a Here's a crying child. She goes down right there is a male child in the Nile River in a basket. And she thinks, well, this must be my God answering my prayer. Takes him out of the Nile. But what's she going to do now? Looks around. All of a sudden, there's a Hebrew girl. This must be one of the Hebrews' children. But my Nile River has given it to me. And there's Miriam saying, hey, I'll go find somebody, I'm sure, that could nurse the child for you. She's like, great, take the child, go. So she takes the child home back to her mother, right, Jochebed, and Jochebed gets to raise her own son underneath the leadership of Pharaoh's authority, right, in their context. And when you think about it, this is the child, right? This is the child that, humanly speaking, is going to overthrow Pharaoh. And Jochebed gets to be Pharaoh's daughter's nanny to her own son. And Pharaoh is going to teach him Egyptian language, education. 
He's going to give him food and water and shelter. Pharaoh's going to pay for every bit of the care of the one who, humanly speaking, is going to be God's deliverer, who's ultimately going to be the face of the overthrow of his kingdom. I think the struggle sometimes for you and me is the next moment that comes in the story. Because there are times where we all see the goodness, the favor, and the grace of God in our lives. But then there are these moments. Verse 10, when the child grew older, she, she, Jochebed, brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he, he, Moses, became her, Pharaoh's daughter's son. And she named him Moses because she said, I drew him out of the water. So here's Jochebed, this mom, who has a child that she keeps in bonds with for three months. She puts the child in a basket. Can you imagine what that would have been like? Sails him down a river, only to get the child back, to get to raise the child for the formative seasons of, of his life, only to then have to go back to Pharaoh's kingdom and to drop Moses off to a woman that she would not have agreed with. She would not have agreed with spiritually. She would have not uh, agreed with in terms of uh, political leadership. She had to jo- drop that child off. Can you imagine what it would have been like to, be in, to have been Jacobin? To have gone home. Empty house. Empty bed. And there are moments in our lives that are just like that moment in her life. There are moments in our lives where we say, God, what in the world? What are you doing? But what we learn about God is that God goes forwards, backwards at times. That there are times when we come to God and God has plans, but we have to trust his promises. We can't see the plan, right? We don't understand how everything is going to work, if everything works the way certainly that we think it should or the way that we want it to. But what we do have are promises. So we trust God. We trust his promises. And at some point, we will see, the, we'll see what was going on. We'll see the plan some point in the future, this world or the world to come. We have promises. And one of my uh, favorite teachers is a guy named Tony Evans. Uh, he's a great pastor, uh, teacher from Oak Cliff Bible Fellowship uh, in Dallas. I saw a quote uh, from him recently that, man, I thought just makes sense in light of what Jacobet is going through. He says, God says that he has the plans. Don't go looking uh, for the plan. Look for God. Say that to you again. Don't go looking for the plan. Look for God. And when you seek God with all your heart, you will discover his plan for your life. God says through the prophet Jeremiah, you will seek me and find me when you search for me with all of your heart. You see that in the life of Shifra and Puah. You see that in the life um, of, of Jochebed and Miriam. And you're going to see that in the life now of Pharaoh's daughter and Moses. You're going to see that when we seek God, what we learn is that God uses us in one another's lives, that we are family, that God chooses for us to use us together in what we call 
authentic community. Ways that we will not understand. Ways that we don't see. But we see it in Scripture, so it must be true. And listen, this was the pattern of the life of Jesus, right? Sometimes he had a big crowd. 5,000, 10,000, 20,000 maybe. And the crowd was great. But he always maintained a small group of 12. As he got to the end of his life, that group got a little bigger, even a, a group of 120. And I said to you a couple of weeks ago, whenever we started um, this series, that you're attending. You're attending online. You're attending here personally in the room. And that's good. But getting connected relationally on the launch pathway was better. I'm going to add that. I want to add to that today. Good that you're attending. Getting connected on the launch pathway of our, uh, of our church, going to starting point, discovering life, life teams orientation, all good. Best is getting connected in what we call a life group. Life group is smaller groups of people from our church that get together during the week for the purpose of doing two things, connecting relationally and taking the next step in your spiritual journey. And just like God used Shifran Pua, right, together. Just like God used um, Miriam um, and Jochebed together. Just like God uses uh, Moses and Pharaoh's daughter together. God uses us in one another's lives to bring out spiritual growth. We don't see everything the same. We don't agree about everything. Um, we, don't, we don't say, you know what, I see it exactly your way. But what God does in the middle of that is he brings out his best. As a matter of fact, the night before Jesus goes to the cross, he addresses this very thing in John chapter 13, verse 34. He says this, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You are also to love one another. By this, will, by this all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. You know, we sing at Christmas, right? Truly, he taught us to love one another. His law is love and his gospel is peace. Jesus says to the disciples, this is the distinctive. The way that people are going to know that you are different, that you're mine, that, you don't, that you're not just a slave to your own appetites, is the way that you love each other. Because you're going to love each other when you don't agree. You're going to love each other when you don't have the same perspective. You're going to love each other in the high moments and the low moments. You're going to sacrifice. You're going to serve each other in ways that probably don't make sense to everybody at times. And that's the distinctive. That's why I think authentic community, living um, with one another in the context of you know, not just this one, but all of the one another verses in, in the New Testament, living those out in the context of a small group, that's what makes us different. And so Jesus called his disciples to it, and I believe that we also are called to it. And so we've got, we have all kinds uh, of groups. Today we launch term one uh, for the year of life groups. And you can, if you're not currently in a life group, man, today is an incredible opportunity uh, for you to get into a group. We have all kinds of groups, right? We have groups meet virtually every day of the week. We have groups uh, for young adults, groups for families, uh, groups that are just men, groups that are uh, just women, groups that study a variety uh, of content. You can know, look, find, search, check out a number of groups. We just ask that when you land in one, stay there for, for the term. 
Angie and I, uh, this past term, we had the opportunity, the blessing, to go visit some of our life groups here at Lewis Center. Man, I was just reminded about what great, great life group leaders we have. Sacrifice for the body, um, seek to do what's best. Our life groups get together and uh, they, they study scripture together, they pray together, they walk through really hard life stuff together, they serve the community uh, together. We were um, one of the groups we went to, Justin and Emily's group, and Justin and Emily have led life group for uh, years. And at one point, their group uh, was really, really big. They had 20-some people in their group and even more kids than that, and they multiplied out. And they've actually done that a couple of times. And so this term, their group was actually a little bit smaller. So Angie and I were there, Justin and Emily, I think maybe two or three other couples, and you're like, oh, man, well, that's not as, that's not as good. It was, it was awesome. And that night, what we got to see, there was a couple in the group who were actually working through God's calling and activity in their lives in the context of their group. They were looking at the highs of their lives, lows of their lives, answering questions, facilitating, going back and forth. And when they said, you know, here's how God used this in our lives and that in our lives. And he says, and you know, years ago, I felt this calling towards ministry and I kind of feel like God is stirring that up in me. Who knows? I may plant a church someday. For me, I was like, hey. So we prayed that night. We prayed specifically for them as a couple. And if you've been around for a while, you've heard me talk about our national church planting network. And we do assessments. We actually do the Columbus assessment here um, at our church. And so we've got an assessment coming up here in, I think, about six weeks. And guess who's coming to the assessment to be assessed as church planters? And all of that got worked out in the context of that small group, that life group. So where is the expression of biblical community? Where is the expression of we are spiritual family in your life? Today's your day. We have bridge groups, kind of like first steps um, into life group that are gathered around a variety uh, of topics. Um, we've got a blended family uh, life group. We've got a post-abortive uh, healing uh, life group. Uh, we've got a group uh, for parents who have children uh, who have special needs. Uh, we've got a group uh, this term for folks who have walked through the grief of having someone in their family who had cancer. Uh, we've got a group gathered around that. This term, we've got some theological groups. I mentioned to you um, a couple of weeks ago, a group called Foundations. Pastor Ed is leading that. That kind of shows how uh, there's a tie from Genesis to Revelation, how the whole of Scripture, the whole of the Bible is tied together. We've got another group that's meeting this term, gathered around what's going to happen uh, in the end times and how Scripture is going to work its way out and how then that kind of uh, helps us see culture differently today. We have groups that meet around all of those topics. If that's one of those groups that you'd like to get connected to, we would love to help you get connected to a group today. In the, uh, in the notes that you've got, there, my teaching notes, there's a link there to an, an online catalog that uh, is filterable, right? You can choose your night of the week. You can choose your geography. You can choose maybe a group of people that you're like more oriented to, um, men, women, you can, whatever that is. You can choose through those things. If, um, if you need help, if you'd like to ask questions whenever the service uh, is over today, we're going to have some members of um, our life group leaders are going to be kind of on this end of the lobby uh, down there. You can just step out there. We'll help you answer any questions that we can to help you get connected 
to a first step in a group so that you can begin to see this value lived and worked out um, in your life. And the reason that we can live that way, the reason, the reason that we can lay down our rights and our views and our opinions to love one another is because we have a Savior who laid his life down in our place. And everything that you and I study and see in the Exodus, everything that we see in the life of Moses, especially his early life, is an echo. Not that he's the Redeemer. He's a Redeemer, right? He's a Deliverer in Exodus. But it points us to the Deliverer. Does that story sound familiar to you in the Exodus? That there's a genocide of a bunch of male children, and because of that, right, a mother and a father, right, they take, they take their son, and he's raised in Egypt only to go give people freedom in Palestine. Does that narrative sound familiar to you in terms of the Christmas story? All of this in the Old Testament is just a setup. It's a setup that points us to the coming Savior, the coming Deliverer the one who would come and save his people from their sins. And so, the night before Jesus goes to the cross, the night that he says, listen, this is a new commandment that I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. And by this, will all people know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another? The night that he says all of that, he also gathers his disciples together and he gives them and therefore gives to us the celebration that we call communion. It's where we gather together as a body around the broken, the broken body of Jesus and the, the shed blood of Jesus for us on the cross as a reminder of repentance, as a reminder for us turning our heart God's direction. Not because we have to, we don't bring our lives under God's authority because we have to. We do it because we want to. And that's the reason communion is for Christians. Because it's the only way it makes sense. It's a celebration of a man who went to a cross voluntarily, who was miraculously resurrected. And as we celebrate it, we celebrate because it reminds us to turn back God's direction. To make sure that there's not space in between us and him. That if we're walking and we're going our own way, that this is the moment, this is the time where we make sure that we are living under his authority as much as humanly possible. Happens in all kinds of ways. I was reminded uh, this past fall, whenever we did what we call Life Change Sunday, and it's just a whole service of baptisms and celebrating life transformation in people's lives. There was a couple who came uh, that morning and they had been prayerful um, about getting pregnant, having a child. God had answered that prayer in the affirmative uh, in this year. And so that morning they were here for the 930 uh, service. They watched everything happen with baptisms and, and all of that. Knew they had right the opportunity. We give everybody the opportunity on that morning to take the step of, uh, of being baptized. After the 9.30 service was over, they met with somebody on our staff team because they were um, talking about child dedication and because of their work schedules, they weren't going to be able to be here that day. So they kind of did a personal dedication um, for them that day. They got in their car and they headed home. On the way home, they have a conversation. One of them says to the other, what do you think about church today? He said, well, 
I don't know, I was kind of thinking maybe I should be baptized. And the other one says, you know, I was kind of thinking I should be baptized. And they looked at each other. They're halfway up 23, right, headed towards home. And they're like, you think we ought to turn? Now, we're, we're already into the 11 o'clock service, right? And they're like, you think we ought to turn around? And they whip it around right there on 23, head back. And in the middle of the 11 o'clock service, right, I'm backstage, and I see them walk in, mom, dad, and baby. And it was so, what such an incredible picture because so dad hands baby to mom. He goes in, he gets baptized, gets out. Mom hands baby to dad. He holds baby, right? While mom gets baptized, they get out. And just seeing the three of them there, that they're saying, you know what? This is just, this is an act of loving obedience and repentance that we're going to trust the promises of God. And we're going to trust that God's way is better than our way. And you can do that. You can repent this morning. You can live in an attitude to say, God, your way, I trust your promises, even when I don't see, even when I don't see your plan. And I believe that because of the cross. So whenever you came in today, uh, you uh, had the opportunity to grab communion elements um, on the way by. Uh, if you did not pick up those communion elements on the way in and you want to celebrate uh, communion with us, if you'll just uh, raise your hand. Somebody from our connections team uh, will bring those uh, communion elements uh, to you. But I'm going to pray, and, uh, and then we'll celebrate communion together. God, we sang earlier that we have witnessed it. We've witnessed it. We've seen your activity in our hearts and in our lives. And God, it has drawn us to you. And so now, God, we come to you just not because... Not because that's the thing to do, but because, God, it's the thing we want to do. You've been so kind. You've been so good. And, God, we want to say this morning, thank you. Thank you for your finished work on the cross. Thank you that um, you died one time for all time, once for all sin. And that you offer us this free gift of salvation. It's in your name we pray. Amen.